there, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You probably know this by heart. You've heard it many times. Can you just say it or read it with me? In the beginning, God. Just stop right there. In the beginning, God. Well, J. Vernon McGee calls this verse, all of verse 1, the doorway into which you will have to walk into the Bible. You have to believe that God is, and we'll see that He is the Creator. The author of Hebrews said, first and foremost, Hebrews chapter 11, he said that he that cometh to God must believe what? That He is. Why would you approach a God that you're not sure exists? Why would you approach a God that you're not sure is interactive with you and your, your world and creation? The question of beginnings perhaps provokes more controversy than any other. But for all the disagreement, I like the Lord's challenge when He gave it to Job. In Job chapter 38, after all the nonsensical uh, advice he got from his friends, then the Lord speaks in Job chapter 38, and He says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Where were you when God laid the foundations of the world? And then he continues in Job 30, he conti- and, and, verse, and chapter 39 as well, he continues with a litany of things in creation of which man has little knowledge and over which man has even less control. And for all the theories that have come and gone, J. Vernon McGee wrote, they can all be boiled down into two classifications. One, Creation. The other, speculation. Every other sense of how this world came into being is nothing short of speculation if you don't believe in creation. By faith, Hebrews 11 says that creation declares the understanding of the worlds that were framed by the Word of God so that the things which are seen were made of things which do not appear. And we'll get to that ex nihilo, that out of nothing. Where did it all come from? God created. By evolution, Herbert Spencer declared, it's an integration of matter and co-committant of dissipation of motion during which the matter passes from indefinite to incoherent homogeneity to a definite coherent heterogeneity and during which the retained motion undergoes a parallel transformation. Now call me pessimistic if you like, But anything that requires that kind of word uh, uh, nonsense, in a a way, to to explain itself is just something I'm going to be skeptical about. Well, again, this same evolutionist, he said, the most general forms into which the manifestation of the unknowable become known are time, space, matter, force, and motion. Now you've all heard that in school. Well, guess what you find in the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1? Someone pointed out, in the beginning, time. God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter, and the Spirit of God, force, moved upon the face of the waters, motion. As we begin our study of Genesis and chapter 1 through chapter 11, 
Let's set the stage by first considering simply this opening statement. In the beginning, God. As the doorway through which we will enter into not only our study, but we enter into the balance of the Bible, God's Word. What was God doing before creation? What is God's intention for creation? How does God interact with creation? And as we stand at this doorway, first consider God's, simply His greatness. It may seem hypothetical to consider what was God doing before creation. But the practical part of it is that if God created something, wouldn't you imagine He has a purpose for it? Exactly. This is redemption planned. This is God's greatness revealed in the trinity of His greatness. And so we see it hinted to from the very beginning. Let us make man in our image. We'll see that as we go through the study. But God's plan of redemption was, according to 1 Peter, foreordained before the foundation of the world. So before God ever laid the foundation of the world, it was foreordained of His redemption plan for the humanity He would now create. God is eternal, having neither beginning nor ending. And that's beyond our understanding. But God is self-sufficient. As A.W. Tozer wrote, God has a voluntary relationship to everything He has created. Now let that sink in for a moment. God has a voluntary relationship with everything He has created. God was doing just fine before He created you or me. Moses wrote in Psalm chapter 90, Before the mountains were formed or brought forth, or thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Psalm 90. When you introduce and allow for evolutionary thought of things improving. Now you know that you know from junior high that goes against every what is that, the second law of thermodynamics? I mean, everything is in decline, right? You know that by instinctively, you know that things are not getting better. But when you introduce evolutionary thought that things are getting better, something else begins to creep into religious thought. You may have never heard it, but it's called process theology. Process theology. The idea that God is becoming greater by way of His creation. So God gets it started. And then along the way, He does some things that are pretty fancy. And He kind of proves Himself. And along the way, we think of God a little more because of what He's done. God is not getting greater than He always was. This leaves us with a limited God in the beginning who is perfecting Himself through His latest, greatest efforts. It's simply not true. By definition, God, and we'll put a capital G in there, right? By definition, God cannot be limited by any measure, and certainly not by evolution, which makes the creature greater than the Creator. Do you remember our study in Romans chapter 1? In Romans chapter 1, remember when they changed the truth of God into a lie? What did they do? They worshipped and served the creature 
more than the Creator. And when you read the balance of Romans chapter 1, which we looked at, evolutionary thinking, in fact, paves the way for every other social perversion that we've witnessed today. God is perfect. He needs no change. Furthermore, we would call Him immutable. He cannot change. And His creation from the beginning was indeed perfect. Well, the God of Abraham is eternal, Genesis 21. The prophet Habakkuk declared underneath are His everlasting arms. And Paul would later refer to Him as the everlasting God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There are many so-called gods, small g, whether in heaven or earth. But to us there is one God, capital G, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. That's our God. In the beginning, God stands in direct contradiction to every other religion of the world who worship a variety of greater and lesser gods. The preamble to the Ten Commandments. You all know, you've heard of the Ten Commandments. You may not know them all. But you've heard of the the preamble to the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus chapter 20. He says, I am the Lord thy God. I am the one that brought you up out of Egypt. I am the one that delivered you from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This one true God is on display in three persons. We call this the Trinity, right? The triunity which was suggested first in Genesis 1. I mentioned it earlier. Verse 26, down in verse 26. And God said there what? Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. It sounds like there's more than one present at creation. So there's this sense of plurality, but there's only one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the great declaration of Israel. They call it the great Shema. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. So there's one God, but He manifests Himself in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that begins to boggle our mind just a little bit. If you're not already, already tripped up on creation, now I'm telling you about this Trinity. Well, I give you this one illustration. I gave it in the, in the class this morning. But I give you this one illustration that, at least for me, it helps me picture the Trinity. Now, not any other thing, but just remember when Jesus was baptized? Matthew chapter 6. Jesus went down into the waters. That's why we, we, do, we follow him in baptism. And then we, he came up out of the water. When Jesus came up out of the water, what do we the, the clouds part, and what do we see descending upon him and lighting on him? The Holy Spirit, like a dove, lighting upon Jesus. So we've got Jesus coming up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends and lights upon Jesus. And then we hear something. What do we hear? A voice from heaven, the Father, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right there it is. God the Son, baptized. God the Holy Spirit, descending. God the Father, speaking. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, the Trinity was confirmed in the preaching of the apostles. Acts chapter 2, this Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is illustrated in the workings of the church in 1 Corinthians 
12, there are diversities of gifts, Paul said, but the same Holy Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord Jesus. There are diversities of operation, but the same Heavenly Father, which worketh all in all. Holy Spirit, Son, Father. Finally, the Trinity is found in the plan of redemption. That is in 1 Peter chapter 1, according to the foreknowledge of God. Remember, before the foundations of the world were laid. Remember that? So we know that God the Father, there in His foreknowledge, then through sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is a great term. We will talk about it in our new member class. A great term of becoming what God wants me to be. But that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There it is. Your redemption planned before the foundation of the world by the Father. Carried out by the Holy Spirit and there by the blood of Jesus. The triune God has been declared distinction, the declared distinction of the Christian church, in which we confirm when we read the Apostles' Creed, we confirm it at each communion service. The uh, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said, We are chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. I used this illustration this morning, I'll use it again. It's something that personalizes it for me, it, it oversimplifies the Trinity but it does personalize it. As far as the Father, God the Father is concerned, I was saved before the foundation of the world. <laughs> That's pretty mind-boggling there. As far as God the Holy, or excuse me, as far as God the Son is concerned, I was saved when I, when I witnessed, I didn't see it personally, but I read of it in Scripture, of the witness when He died on the cross for my sin. As far as God the Father, before the foundation of the world. As far as God the Son, when He died on the cross for my sin. As far as God the Holy Spirit, when I knelt there beside my Father's bed, and He led me in the sinner's prayer, and I said, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Save me. That's the Trinity at work in the heart of the believer. Well, in the beginning, God try to explain it away, and you may lose your soul. Try to explain it. And you may lose your mind. It's beyond comprehension. The greatness of this triune God reveals the redemption plan before the foundation of the world. Now the next two I can take a little quicker, but next consider redemption promised. This is God's sovereignty as it deals with the affairs of man. So humanity. This is God's sovereignty. Redemption promised. When God gave to us His Word, the Bible... He didn't give to us a systematic book of theology divided into things like anthropology and homardiology and soteriology. Theologians like to talk about things like that. And how many uh, angels can you fit on the head of a pen? It's silly things like that, theologians. You know. But the Bible's not divided like a theological book like that. And, and some people like to talk about uh, you know, the seven dispensations that you read throughout Scripture. And that's a, that's a terrific way to sort of divide the thoughts of, uh, of uh, innocence, conscience, government, promise, law, grace, kingdom. That's fine. But while these divisions may help us understand, you understand that the books of the Bible are there, but the verses, they weren't divided that way in, in its original writing. This is a narrative. This is simply a narrative of what God is doing in the affairs of man. This is what a narrative of how God has worked in other people's lives and how He might be able to work in your life and what He's done in an effort to get to know you and live with you and help and certainly save your soul. 
Psalm 90 again, I reference back to that. Before the mountains, before the earth, before the world, before any of that, even from everlasting, thou art God. The Bible is the narrative of time as we know it. And God's dealing with all sorts of humanity and their response to the everlasting God. Warren Wearsby wrote it this way, If you read it long enough, and honestly enough, you will eventually meet yourself on the pages of this book, the Bible. The generations of Genesis introduced to us Adam up through chapter 5, Noah chapter 6, Noah's sons beginning with chapter 11, or up through chapter 11, Terah, the father of Abraham, up through chapter 25, then Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, up through chapter 36. We won't cover any of that in our study. And finally, the famous grandson of Abraham, Jacob. Moses, the author of Genesis, did not write a detailed history of each generation, or each event for that matter, but simply to identify two things. Number one, to confirm where did we come from and how are we responsible to this origin. That's number one. And number two, the purpose of God's people, Israel, established from the very beginning to bring to us redemption's plan through His Son, Jesus Christ. The divisions of Genesis chapters 1-11 through 11 that we will look at are the broad divisions, creation, then we have the fall of man or sin, then we have the flood of Noah, and then finally the dispersion of the Tower of Babel. The cause and curse of sin was clear, and then the beginning of chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, let me go back to it, verses 1 through 3. We are introduced to God's covenant. Genesis chapter 12, so this is beyond where we will study. We've seen everything else as we, as we will work our way through it. But when you come to chapter 12, we have God's covenant is introduced. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of the country, thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And that who hasn't heard of Abraham? And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee, in Abraham, in Abraham's people, in Israel, as the called people of God, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, that is none other than our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Genesis has established for us the promise of redemption. G. Campbell Morgan said, The cycle of Genesis is generation, degeneration, and then regeneration. For example, the first generation, Cain killed Abel. We all know that story. But then with the birth of Seth, the godly lineage of redemption is reestablished. Over and over again, the story of Genesis sets a pattern of God's dealings with man that you will follow throughout all of Scripture, overriding the rebellion of man to accomplish His purpose. Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of His heart to all generations. 
Let me give you a little comparison from beginning to end. Genesis, we begin in the garden, right? We have the first heaven and earth. In Revelation, we have a new heaven and earth. In Genesis, we have this forbidden tree of life. By the time we get to Revelation, we have this welcome tree of life. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the first marriage. By the time we get to Revelation, it's the last marriage supper of the Lamb. In Genesis, Satan seems to be free to roam and tempt people. Revelation, Satan is trapped in the lake of fire for eternity. In Genesis, the curse of death is upon man. In Revelation, no more death. In Genesis, the first Babylon is built. We'll end there with chapter 12. By the time we get to Revelation, the new Babylon is destroyed. In Genesis, a Redeemer is promised. Revelation, the Redeemer will reign. Well, this simple phrase, in the beginning God, establishes our understanding of God's dealings with humanity for the rest of the Bible. Standing at this threshold, we see God's plan for redemption. As we open the door, God's promise for redemption is established. And entering into its pages, redemption is perfected. And this is through the prophecy and the dealings, and what we read in the dealings of God, how He carries out His plan of redemption. If you recall, so I'll take you through some of that. If you recall, Jacob had how many sons? Twelve sons. So which of the sons would be the promise lineage of our Savior? Again, back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. Genesis 49 and verse 10. So we've got 12 sons. How do we know who's going to be the promise of redemption? Genesis 49 and verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh. Shiloh. Who is Shiloh? This is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Who will carry on the lineage of the scepter of Judah, the prophesied coming of Messiah? That is none other than the tribe of Judah. Now you travel on a little further in Scripture, and Exodus tells us how God built His people into a great nation. He delivered them from Egypt. And then Numbers tells us how they ended up wandering in the wilderness of their own unbelief. Joshua led them into the promised land where the rule of judges and the tragic reign of Saul brings us to King David. It is David through whom the Redeemer is prophesied to come, 2 Samuel. Isaiah announced that the Redeemer would not only come from the line of David, but by a miraculous virgin birth. You know this from the Christmas story, Isaiah chapter 7. You maybe didn't know it was prophesied centuries, thousands of years before. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Micah further prophesied in Micah 5, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, not just any Bethlehem, but Bethlehem Ephrata. Nothing good ever came out of this little town of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. But unto thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from everlasting, from old, from everlasting to everlasting. God in the beginning. The angels announced the fulfillment of this prophecy in Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. What's his name? Christ the Lord in the beginning. 
Well, at least four separate occasions, this prophetic line of Messiah was threatened with extinction. Galatians 4, we read all the way through Scripture, we see all of those attacks on, by Satan upon the lineage of, of David, upon the throne of David, upon the coming Messiah. But then when you turn to Galatians chapter 4, it says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. What started in the beginning with God has been perfected, fulfilled according to His Word. That's the good news. And I'll bring it to a close with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is something you must believe if, in fact, you are to be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses, we refer to it as the gospel in a synopsis. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. If you believe this, we turn our attention to the communion service in a moment. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the good news, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless, of course, you believed in vain, all for, for your own purposes, just to look good because you went to church, etc. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that, number one, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, as was prophesied. Number two, and that He was buried. And number three, and that He rose again the third day. All of this, according to the prophetic Word of God, according to the Scriptures. Without God as Creator in the beginning, we are left to the speculation of man. Evolution not only rejects the revelation of God's Word, but it denies the fall of man, so we, you know, the necessity of a Savior. It diminishes the effects of sin, and it even opposes from the outset the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without God in the beginning, there is simply no solution to where we came from. Why are we here? And where are we headed? Evolution cannot give you the beginning. Evolution cannot bridge the gap from nothing to something. Evolution cannot tell you when life became a living soul, the thing that separates us from the rest of creation. We have the freedom of choice. We can interact with our surroundings. We can do things differently next time if we so choose. We're not just instinctive creatures. We are given a free will. We have minds. We have intellect. We can make decisions. The free will of choice that humans uniquely possess. In the beginning, God created all things for His pleasure. And the narrative concludes in Revelation chapter 4. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. In the beginning God planned it, God promised it, and God perfected it over time. In the beginning God is indeed the doorway through which we are introduced to the Maker of heaven and earth, 
We are told of His Son, and we are made alive by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God.